Welcome to the Stony Brook Crossroads Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doyle DeGraw. For more information about this podcast, our community, and other resources, please visit CrossroadsChurchSB.com. So I'd like you to uh, think with me for just a little bit. And you think about, think with me about the story of how the church, the early church was born after Jesus had been resurrected and He had promised the disciples that the Holy Spirit would come. And He gave them these instructions. The instructions were, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then He kind of gave them some circles of influence. Do you remember what the order was? He said, you will become witnesses to... Jerusalem, okay, Judea, somebody said the next one, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth, which in those days, uh, they probably had no idea, could not even imagine, especially with all that's going on with the news about the coronavirus and everything. There could have been viruses in the uttermost parts of the earth in those days, and no one had a clue. That sure would have kept life a lot simpler, I think, in some ways, to not know all that. But anyway, so, so it's interesting. He says to them to wait. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And so, the, so the disciples, the first thing they do is they get together. It says later in that chapter, 120 of them gather together in a place called the upper room. And last week we talked about uh, that we go further as a church if we start with staying in communion with God. Anybody remember that? Okay, well, great. Okay, well, let me, let me stop here. Let me go back to last week's sermon. I'll do that one first. So we're going to be here for a lot longer today because I need to review. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, just kidding. So, so the, first, the first value that we talked about is to go further, we start with being in communion with God. And then the disciples, as they were in communion with God, men and women together, 120 people, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And the very first thing they do is they start a community of people, a church, right? Wrong. That's not what they do. Because what happens next is as they're speaking in tongues and fire is descending on their head, the wind blows and all of a sudden people are noticing, they're wondering what's going on. And Peter stands up and he says to the people, this is, this is about Jesus Christ. And he invites them to, to know the story and their hearts are quickened, and uh, they, they ask, what do we do to be saved? And he said, to repent and turn your lives over to Jesus. And it says, <clears throat> later in Acts chapter 2, it says that 3,000 people, about 3,000 people came to the church that day. And then after that, later in chapter 2, in verses 42 to 47, there's something that's described after they've experienced communion with God, after the mission starts becoming, making disciples of the people. They form together a community. It says they devote themselves to prayer and to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and to fellowship with one another. And so the order of things is communion with God, then it's the mission, and then it's, then it's experiencing community. 
Now, one of the things we've talked about around here for quite a long time is the importance of that little triangle of up, in, and out. Anybody remember that? Come on, come on, work with me, would you please? All right, so, okay, so up, in, and out. I think, though, that in some ways we probably, even though in and out kind of go back and forth, really it's incorrect to say it in this order, up, in, and out. Actually, the order that the church grew was first of all in communion with God, then they went out. And as they went out, then they gathered people into community. And that community started the cycle over again. They, they communed with God as a community, and then God stirred them, brought people to the mission, brought people to them, or they it took them to the people. And there was, there was this ebb and flow that went back and forth. And so this cycle of up, it's up, out, and in. And that's critical because if it's, if it's just about up and in, what do we all tend to do? There's an old saying that says, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And what do we tend to do if everything is about in? We become more and more inward. You know, the word for fellowship is koinonia. We used to call that koinonitis. When all we worried about was us four and no more and who cares about the rest of the world. They're going to hell in a handbasket anyway, so let them have it. But that's not the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that's our responsibility to be on mission as a community, to be that family that's on mission. So we're a church that will go further by pursuing communion with God. And we're a church that will go further when we embrace the mission of God. Now next week what we're going to talk about is a church that goes further because we embrace, we embrace community with God. Embrace the community that already exists with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and communion with one another. So as a church, we go further by pursuing communion with God. And if you forgot what I talked about last week or you weren't here, please go and listen to it on podcast and you can catch up. And then today what we want to talk about is a church will, be, will go further if we embrace our mission with God. And I said it that way on purpose, our mission with God. It's not just our mission for God, it's because He invites us to join Him on the mission with Him. That's what He wants us to do. That's what He desires for us. So I wanted to tell you a story, though, before we get into the Scripture that will help us, the passage of Scripture that will help us to understand that even more fully. 1989, there was, uh, we were living in California at the time where we grew up, and in 1989 was the famous Loma Prieta earthquake. How many of you knew it was called Loma Prieta? You, all, you probably all heard it was the San Francisco earthquake. It was not the San Francisco earthquake. Loma Prieta is actually a little mountain in the Santa Cruz Mountains, a mountain peak that you see uh, from Santa Cruz or you see from San Jose, California. And it was right in Loma Prieta in that little mountain range right there in the Santa Cruz Mountains along the central coast, October 17th at 5.04 p.m. that the Loma Prieta earthquake took place. And this shock was, this, this uh, shock or, or earthquake was centered in an area called the Forest of Nicene Mark State Park, which is about 10 miles from Santa Cruz. It's in a little area called Aptos, Aptos California. And in this section on the San Andreas Fault System in the, the, the Santa Cruz Mountains, this earthquake came at the magnitude of 6.9 on the Richter scale. 
And I forget how it goes exponentially, but if it's a 3.0, it's not half of, or a 3.5, it's not half of the 6.9. The 6.9 is like hundreds of times stronger than a 3.5. Having grown up in California, uh, I lost track of how many earthquakes we experienced. It was not unusual to feel a rumble every once in a while. But this was way more than a rumble. It was the biggest earthquake I remember ever experiencing. Uh, born in 1954 and lived in, you know, lived in California uh, up until 1989, it was the largest earthquake. It was the largest earthquake my dad could remember, and he's going to be 88 years old and grew up in California. So it was a big deal. And most of the damage, interestingly enough, happened in Santa Cruz County, which is Santa Cruz is where Kathy and I uh, met and were married and had our kids. And uh, it's, it affected to the south in Monterey Bay, Monterey Ca- County, and it also affected to the north, San Francisco, which is what we hear most of. But the San Francisco Peninsula and the Bay of Oakland experienced some of the most damage. Uh, Santa Cruz County, actually downtown Santa Cruz in this town of Watsonville, uh, because they had a lot of brick buildings, old brick buildings. You know how brick, how well, Jeff, how well do brick buildings do in an earthquake? Very poorly. Very poorly, exactly right. In fact, some of the most, mo- most of, uh, several of the deaths happened in downtown Santa Cruz because of some of the old brick buildings that were there and people that were in coffee shops or bookshops at the time. Because it was five o'clock, people were out coming home from work and whatever. Um, it's interesting that, to note this, that because it happened during the live broadcast of the 1989 World Series, one of the good things about that, uh, one of the bad things is the San Francisco Giants lost that series to the Oakland A's. Uh, oh, because of, the, because of the World Series game, that actually was really good news because the freeways were not as active. A lot of people were already at the game or already home watching the game. Otherwise, there would have been a lot more damage. I don't know if you remember some of the videos and photos, but one of the things that happened during that earthquake is that there was an upper level of the Bay Bridge that collapsed. And there were people, there was a couple of cars that as it collapsed, just went right over the edge. And uh, so, um, so the... So the freeways had collapsed. There was a freeway called the Embarcadero that collapsed as a result. I mean, it was significant. There were buildings and so on that were collapsing as a result of all of that. And uh, let me, I had somewhere in here the statistics as to how many people. I think, I think the result was 63 people died and like 4,500 people were significantly injured. And I still remember, I think we were without power after that for about a week. But what I, wanted to, what I wanted to mention was where I was at that time. Kathy was home with, the, with all the kids except for our son, Peter. And I was at a soccer practice with Peter. He was about eight years old at the time. And uh, he and his buddies, the soccer team, they, they had just, we had just sent them out to run a lap when the earthquake hit. And the first thing we noticed was the kids were running, and they were running like, like this. And we thought, why are they being so goofy? I mean, they're eight-year-old boys, and so it wasn't surprising. Then we both, the, the dad that I was standing next to, we both realized something was up because we were standing and watching, and then it felt like we were standing on a boat because the earth was just rocking back and forth. And then I remember looking across the street, and there was a department store, and it was like ants coming off an anthill 
people were streaming out of that department store and the light standards were bending back and forth. I'm surprised they didn't snap. And then the next thing that happened was a mom came and this mom says, uh, she drives up frantically and she says, I need to get my son, I need to get my son. There was an earthquake, there was an earthquake. And we're realizing, wow, this must have been serious. And, and so she, she says that uh, the hutch or the, the entertainment center in my, in my living room fell over. Uh, the Bay Bridge has collapsed. I mean, everybody was saying everything. The Bay Bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge has collapsed. Skyscrapers have fallen over. I mean, typical uh, wrong news at the beginning. But it was the worst case scenario. I, I got to get my son home. And she said, you guys need to get home with your, with your sons and your families and make sure everybody's safe. And so... You know, no one had to persuade her to move quickly. No one had to convince her to persuade us that something serious had happened. There was an urgency that she was carrying, and that's the heart of Paul's message that I want us to look at in 2 Corinthians. That was the heart of his message that we, in our mission, are on this urgent message with God to bring people back home to Him. And so I'd like us to look together at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21, and then we're going to look at the very first verse of chapter 6. I'm going to start, uh, well, let's read the first verse that's up there. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Making, for Christ, God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then there should be one more verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Do we have that? Working together with Him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So if we're being transformed, or if we're not being transformed, then the first thing we look at is whether we're in communion with God. Because lack of transformation probably implies we're not communing with Him enough. Another sign that the working of God is not existing in our life or not transforming us like we should is we are careless about the way we handle the grace of God and we don't have much care for the mission field. If we're heartless, if we lack compassion, if we are not concerned about what's going on around us in terms of people not coming to know the Lord, then that's probably an indication that we have lost our communion with God And we're not going to grow. We're not going to go further personally. We're not going to go further as a church. And that's why we need to be both missional and attractive. 
We need to be on the mission field and we need to find ways to attract people because some of it's going to be going out to get people and some of it's going to be welcoming the people that come, that we've invited to come. And so there's this connection to communion that we talked about last week because as I read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us. It compels us. It comes out of this relationship that we have with Him. And as the love of Christ grows in our heart, what stirs in us, what should be stirring in us, is this desire that says, I've got to go tell somebody else. This love is so amazing, I've got to go tell somebody else. And when we're in, when we're in communion with God, we find ourselves compelled to be on mission with God, just like this mom was compelled to tell us what the news was about the earthquake. It's in our DNA, it's our destiny to want to go around and tell other people about what, what's going on in our relationship to God. So how do we look for this destiny, or how do we live out this destiny? So the first thing is, if we look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first thing is, we approach everyone around us from God's point of view. Paul says in verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regard Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. This is what happens when we experience this heaven-to-earth experience where people become a new creation. We see things from a different perspective. We look around, and if we look at people and see them just in the flesh, we see them as dirty, rotten, scoundrels, sinners that deserve to go to hell. But if we see them from God's perspective, and we see them from the Father heart of God, we have a different attitude. We realize that they're people in need of a Savior. Somebody said one time that anyone can find dirt in a mountain, but it takes someone that has a special perspective to be able to find gold in the middle of all of that dirt. And so what we, what we recognize is the first thing is we approach everyone around us from God's point of view. So whether it's the kids you work with at school, whether it's the people you work with in the office, whether it's people that you know in your neighborhood, you look around and you say, God, what is your heart for them? What is your perspective? The second thing, in verses 17 and verse 21, the second thing is we adopt our identity in Christ. Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Everybody say this, I am a new creation. That's your identity. You're a new creation. You, you have a different DNA now than you do before you come to a relationship with Christ. We all know that. The old has passed away and the new has come. And he who was made, um, made to be sin and knew no sin, he, he, he allowed us to become, Paul says, he allows us to become the very righteousness of God. We're a new creation and we're actually the righteousness of God. So people look at us, and what they should be seeing is the righteousness of God. It's in our DNA. It's who we are. And the amazing thing about transformation that occurs out of our communion with God is He enables us and He empowers us to speak on His behalf. So we adopt our identity in Christ because that's our DNA. The next thing that Paul talks about in verses 18 and 19 is we accept our ministry from God the Father. And here's our ministry. This is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself, and He gave us 
the ministry of reconciliation. Everybody hold your hands out in front of you. And just imagine right now, what Paul is saying is, the ministry of reconciliation, God handed it right to you. You're holding it right now in your hands. He gives you the ministry of reconciliation. He asks you to accept this ministry from the heart of God the Father. And he says, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Stephanie came home the other night with a couple of lanterns that she bought that she wants to use for the wedding. Did you know she bought those? You probably did. And so, and so anyway, she brought these, she brought these lanterns home and uh, she got a little concerned about what might happen to them. And she sends me a text, would you, and she says, would you not let mom mess with those lanterns? And I'm like, okay. So we carefully took the lanterns, and we put them in a box and packed them with plastic wrap and all that kind of stuff, and taped it up and put it in the basement so it could be stored carefully. The picture that I'm wanting to share with that is, is this picture. God has entrusted us in the same way that we were entrusted to take care of that treasure. For her, that was a treasure. And he's entrusted us with this treasure called the gospel. And he's saying, I'm willing to give it to you. I'm willing to, uh, to share the good news with you if you'll take this treasure and share it with others as well. We're entering into a, we're in a divine partnership. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. I was thinking about, you know, VJ and Emily having their baby this morning. I mean, imagine when they get her home, you know, nobody's going to have to say, hey, uh, would you make sure in, that the nursery's warm enough? The baby's crying. Oh, would you, it's your turn. Or maybe they will. I don't know if they'll do that or not. But, you know, they'll, no one has to tell a mom to take care of a baby unless something's wrong. And if you think about it, no one should have to. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't even have to share this message with us. And if we've gotten callous and lackadaisical and lazy in our concern for carrying this responsibility and this treasure of reconciliation, there's something that's off. That would be a dysfunctional father or mother if that's the way they treated their baby. And so we recognize it's something, it's a gift that he's given to us and he asks us to accept the responsibility. The next thing is we embrace our unique opportunities for Christ. Verse 20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Make, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The word appeal is the word parakaleo. So it's as if I come along, Stephen, and I say, can I show you the way? Are you sure which way to go? And he says, no, I'm not sure which way to go. Well, I'll stay with you until you find your way there. It's coming alongside people as ambassadors would for someone in a country to help them find their way to a certain destination within that country. And if we're going to give multiple people multiple opportunities to hear about Jesus... It's going to take multiple ambassadors. 
And we're given this appointment to come alongside in whatever way possible. In continual action, we need to be careful that we don't grow weary or grow tired in our call because we're not speaking on our behalf. Now Paul uses an interesting word when he says making this appeal or parakaleo because it's, it's a gentle word. It's, it's, it's a word that comes almost with tears. It says, if I could just get you to see. It's the same word he uses in Romans 12 when he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He says it in Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, I appeal to you, please walk in a manner worthy of your calling. First Thessalonians, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. So it's looking around at one another and saying, come on, come on, just move a little further. But it's also coming alongside of people that you and I know that need to know the heart of the gospel and saying, is there some way I can show you more clearly the way? I want to read you something that N.T. Wright says about this. He says, Paul is not offering a new philosophy through his message, though his message makes robust philosophical sense in its own way. He's not inviting people to try out a new religious experience, though anyone who believes his gospel will have experiences they have never imagined. He is going into all the world with a message from its newly enthroned sovereign, a message inviting anyone and everyone to be reconciled to the God who makes them, loves them, and has provided the means of reconciliation for them to come back to know and love Him in return. We're ambassadors. An ambassador doesn't speak to please his audience. He speaks to please the King. An ambassador does not speak on his own authority. His own opinions or his demands don't mean anything. He speaks on the authority and the demands of the king or the governor, the leader, the president. He simply says what he's commissioned to say. An ambassador is more than a messenger. He's also a representative. And the honor and the reputation of his country are in his hands. I want you to think about that for just a minute. The treasure we hold. This is the risk that God has taken in us. The honor and reputation of heaven is in our hands. Why would he do that? Why would he risk all of heaven with us? And it's because the heart of the Father is to invite others to participate in the fellowship that exists between the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. He wants more to join in that, as someone has said, that divine dance that takes place. And so he entrusts us with that great privilege and responsibility. Peter says, as people of God, we proclaim his praises. We are ambassadors that share the testimony of God's work. Paul tells Timothy, as people of God, we teach others the way of God. We know that some, according to Romans 10, some may go and others will send. Some will teach and others will invite. Whatever the case, whichever direction we go, we go with an urgency, we teach, we send, we invite with an urgency to get a response 
from those we are on mission to reach. And this pleading also has this kind of intensity behind it. It's the intensity of the blind man pleading for Jesus to hear and to touch him. It's the urgency of a father pleading with Jesus to raise his son from the dead. It's the desperation behind this assignment that's birthed out of our communion with God. The closer we are with God, the more intense this urgency becomes that we want to reach people with the Gospel and with the love of the Father. The last thing is this. We recognize that we're not empty-handed. If you eliminate the chapter headings and the verses and you read this passage from the end of chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Working together with Him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We recognize that we are not empty-handed. But we recognize that we also have the responsibility to use what God's put in our hands. And let me give you a couple of examples as a reminder. Jesus gave a couple of parables. One of the parables He told was the parable of the talents. He gave one man one, He gave one man three, and He gave another one five. And when he came, the Master comes back, He finds out that the one that had five talents increased them to ten talents. The one that had three talents increased his treasure to six talents. And then he came to the one servant that had one talent and he had buried his talent in the ground out of fear of the master and had not produced another talent. Another parable that Jesus shares is the parable of the ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom. And their responsibility is to keep their, their lamps lit with oil or filled with oil so that they can light the lamps when the bridegroom arrives. And they get weary of waiting. And they forget to stay in close communion with the person that's letting them know what's going to happen. And five of the bridegrooms remember to keep their lamps filled with oil. Five of the bridegrooms get lazy and their lamps get empty. The oil, the light burns out and they don't replenish the oil. And when the bridegroom finally comes, five of them line up and hold the lamps. And five begin to cry out, please give me more oil. I ran out of oil. Please share your oil. And it's too late. They get cast to the side. And all of us have the responsibility to take this treasure that God's given to us. And the question is, what are we going to do in terms of being responsible for leading people home. We want to be the people that when different ones come to us and say, would you please show me the way home to the Father? We want, don't want to be the ones that say, I, I don't know, I, I, I lost my map, I, I misplaced my GPS, I, don't, I, I haven't talked to the Father for quite a long time. I haven't been that close to Him. Maybe you need to go talk to somebody else. No, what God wants all of us to do is be responsible and ready. Because we have the responsibility and the privilege to show the way home through Jesus Christ. Our communion with God empowers us and it compels us to be ambassadors on mission for Him. I'd like to close this morning by praying. I'm going to read a prayer that I came across that I think fits this message very specifically. I'd like you to, 
bow your heads and close your eyes, and I'd like you to put your hands out in front of your in front of yourself. And I want to pray this prayer over us this morning. It says, Gracious God, thank you for your big heart that wishes no one to be lost, but everyone to be saved. Today we bring to you our family and friends who remain lost without Christ. And as we wait in this moment, I'd like you to bring to the Lord the names of those you know that are far from Jesus that you're thinking of right now. Those who remain lost without Christ. Think of those names. Maybe whisper those names to the Lord right now. Whisper their names that they would come home. And the final part of this prayer is we pray that your Spirit would bring them to Christ in faith so they might find new life in the Savior's name. Amen. Let's stand together, please, as we sing our last song. I'd like you to extend your hands out in front of you. And I want to remind you that you hold a treasure in your hand as you go out. And I want to pray this benediction over you this morning from Hebrews. It says, May the God of peace, who brought you again from the dead, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us everything that's pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.